In a career spanning some six decades, our guest today has appeared with the theater's top artists, in the top roles, with the top theater companies in the U.S. and in England, and she is indeed true theater royalty, appearing most fittingly right now on Broadway in the royal family. Welcome to the American Theater Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing, and it is my great honor to welcome Rosemary Harris. Thank you so much. Obviously, we have to start talking about the royal family. For many people have probably now read or heard, this is your second go-round with this play. Uh, you were in uh, a now legendary production almost 35 years ago. Um, you're not playing the same role. So what is it like to go into a show that you had such a great success with and, and look at it and explore it? from a different perspective? Well, I think I, I mentioned to somebody else, somebody else asked me the same question, and I said rather rather um, facetiously that I said it's, it's rather like putting on a warm sock on a cold winter's morning. There's something wonderful, comfortable, comfortable about going into a play that you know so well, in, in spite of the fact that you're looking at it from a different perspective. I... It, did come up from time to time um, the, th- the thought that I might play Fanny Cavendish, but I, I never felt I was quite ready or, or the timing was quite right or, or that maybe I was quite old enough. And suddenly I realized that um, when it came down to it, I, was act- I am actually 10 years older than Legallian, Eva Legallian when, than when she played it. So I thought if I don't do it now, next, <laughs> next time it comes around, I shall be either gone or, or much, much too old to go up and down those stairs. So I grabbed the chance, and I'm just so thrilled. Well, that first production back in uh, in the mid-'70s, co-stars included George Grizzard, Miss mm-hmm. Legallienne, who you mentioned, Sam Levine, yeah. Joe Mahar. I mean, it Rosetta was... Rosetta Lenoir. Rosetta Lenoir. I mean, it was, it was a great group, and you have an extraordinary cast again. Yes. But you say it's putting like on, like putting on an old sock, yet inevitably, well, the rest of the ensemble is different. <laughs> well, in a way, but it's like um, an orchestral piece of music. The play is so beautifully written, almost like a piece of music, like a, a, an orchestral piece. And all the characters play in different instruments, but they're playing the same music, basically. And even though the Tony's different and the Oscar's different, and because they're different people, but it comes out sort of the same, just like musicians playing the same concerto. Hmm. You know, people say, well, they're different musicians, but it's the same concerto. And I feel very much like that about the score of the royal family. To me, it's like a score. And this time around, we have different instrumentalists playing the same score. So I sit in the wing sometimes and I'm listening and I think, it's uncanny because it sounds so much like the other production. But then why wouldn't it if it's the same piece of music? And had any of your castmates, had any of the company, even the designers, the director, had they seen the production? No, I, I doubt it. Uh, hmm. no, I, so, I so it's never come up that they said, you know, I was I was ten and my parents took Not me to Not in see the you. cast, I don't think. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I mean, lots of people have come up to me to say that they saw it, but I don't think anybody in the cast, in this present cast, saw it. Hmm. So, 
But it's it, it's great fun. I'm I'm having a wonderful time. And a musician, um, John Macherry, who who was the conductor of the Hollywood Bowl for quite a long time, and he's now the chancellor of the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. And he himself is a wonderful musician. And he made that remark. He said the the, the script was like a score, like an opera score, an operetta because the opening of the play is like a comic opera with everybody running in and bells going and doors slamming and, and then there's a quiet moment and then the play starts and then there are arias and there are duets and then there are ensemble scenes. It's um, they're very similar to, a, to an operetta. Hmm. Since you obviously knew the play so well, first, well, first of all, who, who approached you about being in it? Was this a call to your agent? Was this a call from Manhattan Theatre Club? No, it Club? was a wonderful call from Lynn Meadow from, mm-hmm. from the Manhattan Theatre Club. And this was about two years ago, and she oh. said, we're thinking of doing the play. Would you be interested? And hmm. I said, oh, <laughs> of course I would be interested. I would. I, I said, it, I, it gives me shivers of excitement to think that one might be doing it again. Now, that's interesting because you say it was perhaps two years ago. In the ensuing two years Mm -hmm. between the time it started to become a reality and you actually went into it, did you find yourself thinking about the part, remembering how the Galleon had done it, or were you... Not necessarily, because I wasn't sure it was going to happen. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't a done deal two years ago. It It was something that the Manhattan Theater Club were thinking of doing. And it was a question of a people's availability and things and it slightly got pushed aside because there were other productions lined up to use the theatre so it had to be put on a back burner for a little while and then when the timing was right that was when Lynn called me and said are you ready Mm -hmm. would you like to do it this time around so even with these great memories do you think were you able to go in as I would imagine most directors would like from their actors as a relatively blank slate to look at the play anew? <laughs> I'm afraid not. <laughs> no, it's so, it's, I'm channeling Miss Legallion, I'm sorry to say. Um, I hear her voice, I hear her, I see her. Um, I'm, I'm being quite brazen about borrowing from her. Huh. Um, I just wish I could do it as well as she did it, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm her understudy, in other words. I'm, huh. I'm quite definite about that. I wasn't going out on any limb to try and do it differently. Are there specific things you could point to for people who who have the opportunity to see the play that that you would say are particularly (laughs) Miss Legallian's? I mean that first remark of hers when she's come down the stairs and Kitty says, I like a nice womanly figure myself and and, and I can hear Legee saying, you ought to be very happy. (laughs) And so things like that I hear in my, my, my inner ear. Given that the play itself was written as, some, to some degree, a satire of the Barrymores and some other theatrical families of the era in which it was first done, do you think the audience, the audience in the 70s were not necessarily as far removed from the real people as audiences now? Mm-hmm. There are probably very few people in the audience who ever had a chance to see any of the Barrymores on mm-hmm. stage, I'd be shocked. Do you, do you sense that the show is received at all differently? No, I don't think so, because in the 70s, I don't think anybody would have actually seen the Barrymores. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't quite have been of that era. Their film work would have at least been, some of the film work, certainly, mm, yes. of Lionel, 
for yes, example, yes, would have been I familiar suppose. to people. But I was, somebody made a remark the other day because, um, you know, when the play was originally done in 1927, um, they found it very hard to cast because none of the leading actors, certainly none of the leading actresses of the time, dreamed of playing Julie Cavendish. They wouldn't have dared to in front of Ethel, because Ethel was probably, Ethel Barrymore was probably one of their greatest friends, and Ethel was very upset about the play and uh-huh. wanted to sue, so uh, Catherine Cornell and people like her were, were, weren't about to go on the stage and march around pretending to be Ethel, because she would never have spoken to them again. So I think they weren't able to get a real star um, to play the part. Hmm. Um, I don't recall exactly the actress who did, did did do it, but it's such a wonderful role, you would have thought all the leading actresses of the time would have jumped at it. But when you really think about it, I mean, if there was a play being written about Meryl Streep's family and her brothers and sisters, if she had them on the stage, would any current actress contemporary want to go up on the stage and try and be Meryl, they, they wouldn't. They wouldn't <laughs> They wouldn't touch it with a barge pole. Hmm. So, but, you know, I, I wonder, as we're talking about this, there might have been one person in your production in the 70s who had seen the Barrymores, and that would have been Legalia. Oh, yes. Yes, although, you know, I don't know um, when, when there was a little anecdote, side anecdote, was when Ellis... Because you know, Roger Stevens was the person from the Kennedy Center who, who contacted Ellis and he said, I, I want to play uh, for the Bicentennial. Do you have any suggestions? And I think it was Ellis's dream and idea to come up with the royal family. And Roger thought that was a great idea. And Ellis said, well, we must go to the very top to find our Fanny Cavendish. And he thought about it and he offered it to Dame Judith Anderson. Hmm. And he thought you can't go, you know, higher at the top of the pinnacle than that because he thought it was very important to have somebody like her. And a week before we went into rehearsal, she contacted us and said she'd hurt her back and Hmm. wouldn't be able to appear. So we were sort of left in a in a in a big dilemma as to what to do. And then Ellis said to me, he said, Do you think do you think Legee would would help us out and, and you know I said, well, we can but ask her. And I remember he called her and he said, he told her what had happened and that Dame Judith had had turned it down at the last moment. And Legee said, well, what's the play, darling? What's the play? And he said, well, it's called The Royal Family by George Kaufman and Edna Ferber. And there was a pause. And Legee said, you know, darling, I don't do boulevard comedies. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I bring that up because I think she might not have seen what she might have considered the Barrymore were boulevard comedies. Mm-hmm. I don't know. They weren't her classical work that that she had given her life to. But she said, well, anyway, send it to me and I'll read it and see what I think of it. And as soon as she got the play, she called us up and she said, I'm on board. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'd love to do it. And, of course, the rest is history because she joined us and then we ran it for, I forget how many months it played on Broadway. But then she took it on tour for nearly two years herself. Wow. So it, it was a... It was fun, but I only bring that up because I don't know whether she would have gone to see Ethel and, and, and John in, in their plays because they were not her, her, her kind of not ki- her kind of theatre. In fact, when we opened, we, we played at the Helen Hayes, and that had been the Fulton Theatre, and that's where Miss Legallion had made her debut. Hmm. 
And, um, of course, it was named after Helen Hayes, who was a rival, so she never referred to it as the Helen Hayes Theatre. She always called it the Fulton. <laughs> <laughs> we used to tease her about it. Again, probably a question you've been asked more than once uh, in preparing for this production. Um, you are yourself the mother of a leading lady, uh, Jennifer Ely, and um, I'm wondering if the relationship between the mother and daughter in the play has any echoes for you now that both you and your daughter have made lives in the theater? Um, not, I don't think so, really. Um, although I was laughing with somebody last night, uh, an actor, and I, I, we were talking about, because each of the Cavendishes, except for Fanny, says they want to give it up and lead a private life, an ordinary life. And I said, oh, I think it was Miss Lansbury came to see the play last night. Yes, it was Miss Lansbury. And we were laughing about it. And I said, did you ever feel that you ever wanted to, <laughs> you know, give, up, give it all up? And she said, no, of course we did. We always want to do that all along. And I said, well, I suppose it is true from time to time. Um, a, for different reasons, maybe the work isn't coming in and you think, well, maybe I oughtn't to waste my time and I ought to do something else. Or for whatever reason, I think there hardly can be an actor who hasn't thought from one time or another to, to, to turn their back on this. Maybe the stage more than films because films don't take up your whole life. But the theatre does. When you do a play, it's all-consuming. You hardly have time to do anything else. And my husband's a, John Ely is a wonderful writer, and he sometimes says rather ruefully when I'm doing a play on Broadway, he says, my wife works nights. <laughs> 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 and it's not lonely, you know. It's lonely for a family and husbands and children and things to be bereft of their, their, their mother every, every evening. Hmm. Well, let's go back. To the beginning of your career, um, you actually, though you are English, you spent much of your childhood not in England itself. Uh, yes, that's true. My father was in the British Royal Air Force, and he'd been out in India. Um, he'd had a little girl. He had, my mother married very young, sort of 19 and 20, and then my father got posted out to India as it was then, now Pakistan, to the northwest frontier. The British called mm. that the northwest frontier of Afghanistan. And because the baby was so newly born and it was dangerous to take newborn babies out to that area at that time, and so he and my mother just left and they went off to India for eight years mm. and left their baby with my mother's mother who was losing her baby. She only had one child, and she was losing her. So she said to my mother, why don't you leave the baby with me? I'll take care of her. So everybody was happy. But I don't think anybody thought that my mother and father would stay away for eight years, but they did. They had a wonderful time in India. But then my mother became pregnant with me, and they decided it was time to come home. So they came home, and I was born, and then they realized that it, it wasn't, too unsafe to take newborn babies out to India, so um, they took me out with them. Mm -hmm. so that's how I spent my early childhood in in places that were all in the news now, Pushar and Karachi and Quetta and where all the trouble is. It's it's so strange. Uh -huh. 
So when did you come back to England? I was about six, six and a half. Oh, okay. So, so still I was very still, young. I was still young, but I remember it so vividly. It's a, in fact, I didn't speak very good English when I came back because my sister and I used to speak Hindi to each other, and and and. I'd never seen England that I could remember, and I was so amazed at the green fields and little white houses because it wasn't like anything that I was used to. Hmm. So when did the theater bug bite? Oh, in India. my first In India? Yes, my first performance. I, <laughs> I was four years old, and I can remember it as if it was yesterday. My sister was the thespian in the family. She was eight years older than me, so she was always the adventuresome one. But she had put on this concert and devised this concert and made up the whole program. And one of the items on the program was the Dance of the Seven Veils. And she had an old vinyl recording of the narration of the Dance of the Seven Veils. And she cast me at the age of four as the queen. And there's a line in the record where it says the seventh veil is about to come off. And then it says the door opened and the queen came walking in. And that was my entrance. And I can remember it like it was yesterday. And all I had to do, I never underestimate a non-speaking role, because <laughs> all I had to do was walk across what was designated as our stage and in complete silence and with my nose in the air. And then when I got to the end, she taught me how to kick my train and I turned and I worked all the way back and <laughs> exited. I don't know what the audience must have thought, but I was convinced that I was the queen and I was the center of, <laughs> center of attention. <laughs> and I, that's where I think the bug just bit me. Although I never thought that I would actually do it for a living. Hmm. I, I thought, and again, my sister went to drama school, and I thought all her fellow students were all a bit flighty and inconsequential. They were at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, and I was 11 years old, and they were all 18 and 19, and and um, I didn't think a lot of them. And I wanted to do more with my life, and I wanted to be a, a, a hospital nurse hmm. very seriously. But uh, it didn't work out that way. Well, you ended up at the Royal Academy. <laughs> I did, by chance, really. That that was in a very roundabout way because um, I well, it's hard to explain, really, but I, I wanted to be a nurse, and then I realized that if I went... I was ambitious, and I thought, if I go on nursing, I'll be the matron of a big hospital, and I won't be able to nurse anybody. And, and I had something wrong with my ankle, and a wonderful young physiotherapist came to work on my ankle and she had a little car and a dog in the back seat and and some equipment and I thought that's what I want to be I want to have that independence and and then I realized that being a physiotherapist was very expensive and I didn't have any money so that's when my sister said to me well why don't <laughs> why don't you act you're always acting at home <laughs> you may be the first person to ever have been told it's expensive to be a physiotherapist why don't you go into the theater as as a money job that's but, right but it, i know but it, it it actually turned out all right didn't it <laughs> so what was the big break um i never did have a big break i mean I, well i did really i yes i suppose you know, it, it's, it never happens quite like that. But my big break, I suppose, the first one which really took me by surprise was when Moss Hart brought me to Broadway. And I was a very humble 
understudy in a pretty awful play in the West End. I'd won it as a prize from drama school, and I was miserable. I, I really so was... So what play was that? It was, <laughs> it was called The Gay Dog, uh-huh. and it was about a greyhound whose name uh, happened to be Nelly, which was kind of strange. The, the, the puns and jokes go well, on I, and Well, on. I, they weren't, they, it wasn't a joke then. Mm-hmm. It was all very serious. And, and the funniest thing of all was that Nelly, the greyhound, was a boy dog, but the audience never noticed. He, he was referred to as Nelly all the way through the play. <laughs> and I didn't have a job, a part in the play, and my job was to walk Nelly round in the... in the intermissions to make sure that he wouldn't cock his leg on the stage. And that was my... I'd I'd left Rada in trailing clouds of glory because I'd I'd been lucky enough to win the gold medal and there I found myself lamenting in in a very drafty old dirty dressing room thinking, oh, it's all come to this. (laughs) I'm just a kennel maid. And um, that's when Moss Hart happened to come by. And he was casting his play, The Climate of Eden, and he had come to England to cast. The main lead was a young man, and and he'd come to audition uh, young actors. And because I was the loose girl at the theatre and the I was under contract to the HM tenants, they didn't have to pay anybody, so they sent me down every day to read with all the young actors. And after about two weeks... Um, Moss had made his selection and uh, he'd got so used to hearing me read opposite them and I was really off the book by then because, you know, I (laughs) I was just, you know, not really looking at the script at all because I knew it. And then this wonderful moment when he beckoned me over to where the footlights, there used to be footlights, and he beckoned me over and I knelt down because he was sort of standing below me and I knelt down on the edge of the stage and he looked up at me and he said, I've got so used to hearing you read this part. Um, I want to take you to New York hmm. with us. So, so I always said he picked me up out of the gutter and made me empress. <laughs> <laughs> or at least <laughs> and the dog walking. <laughs> away from dog walking. And Kitty, the lovely, lovely Kitty Carlisle Hart, and I used to laugh about it so much, but um, she, was, she was there at the same hmm. time. Hmm. But the show itself was not a no, success. No, no, no. Although went, Moss Hart was the toast yes, of Broadway. Yes, he was terribly disappointed. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a very complicated story. It all took place in British Guiana, and it was all about voodoo. And, and we had a church on this. It was at the Martin Beck, and we had a church that revolved so that there was a whole church service inside. And I don't really remember the whole ins and outs of the plot, but... Um, it was pretty complicated, and it wasn't your usual kind of Broadway fair. Right. But your big break didn't last very long. No, but I had a taste. Of, mm-hmm. I had a taste of America. And you see, when I was a little girl, Hollywood had always beckoned me, although I didn't know what Hollywood was. But my sister used to collect, she had a huge scrapbook, and she used to collect pictures of movie stars people like Loretta Young and Barbara Stanwyck and people like that. And so Hollywood always some, was some special place that I thought one day I might... I don't know. You don't really seriously think you'll ever go there. But um, I, Broadway, I didn't really know very much about. I knew a lot, a lot about Hollywood through my sister. But So it was very exciting to find myself here. And I, I determined the play closed after two weeks... And I had to go back because I was under contract to the 
to the HM tenants, and they put me in very reluctantly. I didn't want to do it at all, but I had no choice. And they put me into the seven-year itch. In what role? The girl. And there I was back again doing something that I really didn't want to do. Uh You know, I I wanted to hold Dame Peggy Ashcroft's train. I, I wanted... I wanted to be a classical actress, and I, here I was in another boulevard, very, you know, very insignificant, I thought, boulevard comedy, and it wasn't my desire at all. So clearly you made a choice because I, it looks like from 54 to 56 or so, you joined the Bristol Old mm, Vic, a very that respect, was my respected company. Yeah. I got offered a year's contract at the Bristol Old Vic, and I thought, oh, I'm back on track. You know, I sort of got off the track, but I was suddenly back. It was all chance. Everything is chance, isn't it, really? But finally, you were getting to appear in the kinds of shows I would imagine you wanted to do. Um, A Much Ado About Nothing was Mm -hmm. the first one, and then we did, I think we did eight plays in that year, Hmm. um, and three Shakespeare's. One was, the first one was Much Ado, and then Merchant of Venice, and then The Winter's Tale. Hmm. But I hadn't done much Shakespeare at drama school because I'd only been three semesters at drama school. Um, So somehow I seemed to dodge between... I never got to do any Shakespeare. So when I got offered this job, I I was absolutely panicked because I'd never acted in Shakespeare and it it seemed very strange to me, um, even though when my sister used to, you know, read some of it to me when... You know, when I was little, I thought, how do you act something where everything begins with, each sentence begins with a capital letter? It it didn't look like a script to me, and I was petrified of it. But um, there was a wonderful teacher at at drama school, and um, she had told us when we were leaving, she said, you think you know everything, and good luck to you all, but if you ever need me, this is my phone number, Bayswater 4962. And immediately I got offered this job. I called her up and I said, Mary, please help me. I don't know where to begin. So she helped me, coached me with my first Shakespeare's, and Mm -hmm. I was so grateful to her. And then the interesting thing was at the end of this year, which I adored, I was just doing, and I was playing on the Theatre Royal Bristol, England, which I mentioned in the royal family every night because hmm. Fanny Cavendish says that she was acting on, in the Theatre Royal. The, the wedding supper was served on the stage of the Theatre Royal and I thought, how funny, it's all gone full circle. But it's a lovely little theatre and one of the oldest in England. But at the end of that season, which was a year, I didn't have a job and I was sort of thinking, mm, what am I going to do? And the phone went and it was the director of the Old Vic and he in said London. in London, which was sort of like graduating to the big, big time. And he said, "I we have a season to offer you." And I said, "How is that?" And because I thought the season was all cast, and he said, "Well, what's actually happened is that we had cast an actress in the roles that we're going to offer you now, but she has t- just turned us down." And uh, when I'll tell you why, um, for a very good reason, as it turned out she was offered a look back in anger. And the actress was Mary Ewer. Hmm. And she had been cast as Desdemona and the parts that they were offering me, but at the same time she got offered look back in anger at the Royal Court Theatre, and she very wisely and sensibly uh, took that offer, which left the door open for me. So 
I, I got to play her parts for the next year at the Old Vic. So let me ask you about, you, you played Desdemona, <laughs> your, your Othello and your Iago. Oh, yes. Well, I'd actually played Desdemona <coughs> earlier on television, on live television, before we did it on the stage. It was not, not connected, it was for the BBC. And why I mention it is because it was done with a wonderful African-American actor, uh, Gordon Heath, who lived in Paris. And, um, you know, the part was usually played by European actors, but Gordon happened to be African-American. And uh, so that was wonderful. And Tony Richardson was the director of this version of, of, the, of Othello. And why I mention it is because it was live television. Hmm. And we rehearsed it, and then we had a camera rehearsal, and then we went on air. That was on Monday. And then we had two days off, Tuesday and Wednesday. We all went home, did whatever we wanted to do. Thursday we came back without any more camera rehearsal or with any rehearsal. We went back on air again <laughs> to do it the second mm -hmm. time on that Thursday night. And my niece was working at the BBC the other day, and I said, do look in the archives, see if you can find, you know, any evidence of that. And she dug it up. Oh, my. And it is, I couldn't watch more than about five <laughs> minutes of it. I was just, I was like a rabbit caught in the headlights. It was, I must have been pretty awful. Hmm. But, but, um, but come back to the stage version. And then, then I got to play it on the stage, which was, which was quite a different thing because, you know, you got to rehearse properly. And <laughs> although you did it in front of a live audience, it wasn't like live television. Uh, yes, I did. Well, Richard Burton had been cast um, as Othello, and he, didn't, he, he went to the director, Michael Benthall, and said he changed his mind. He didn't really want to play it. And he tried to get out of it, and Michael couldn't let him out of it. But he said, look, I have a s solution. Would you and Johnny Neville like to alternate parts? He said, I think I can persuade Johnny to do, to do that, if you will agree to that. So <sighs> Richard said yes. So John Neville and he shared the role. Huh. And I was the sort of ping-pong ball between them, you know, because we didn't have any more any extra rehearsals, even though we had two Othellos, and they were completely different in character. Wow. You know, and I, if I'd had a little more sense, I would have put my foot down and said, you know, wait a minute. But I was too naive and, and overawed, really, by the whole thing to, to make any <laughs> objections. Hmm. But it, it was it was exciting. It was fun. And then you found your way back to Broadway in some plays that are not particularly well remembered, yet with some interesting people. Interlock by mm. Ira Levin. Mm -hmm. um, that was the only. I think Ira would agree. It's the only only flop he's ever had mm. because it didn't it didn't run very long. It was a fascinating play, but it, it wasn't a huge success. You're right. Um, the Disenchanted. By Bud Schulberg. Oh, that was wonderful. Which, which is a remarkable play, yes. not well remembered. Yes. And you were essentially playing Zelda Fitzgerald yes. opposite Jason Robards. Oh, yes. With George Grizzard. Oh, as the young man. George yep. was playing the Bud Schulberg part. Yes. Hmm. Oh, that was wonderful. Great experience. Hmm. And, and then um, something called The Tumbler. <laughs> directed by a certain Laurence Olivier. Yes, yes, oh yes. What was that? Well, um, I think it came about because for various reasons, 
A, I think Sir Lawrence wanted to leave England and he, he, he grabbed anything that would help him to get away from England because his, his personal life was, was sort of getting very complicated and he wanted to get away from England. That's the only reason I can think. And also Ben Levy, who wrote the play, was a friend of his. Hmm. But, I mean, when you come down to it, and Roger Stevens put it on, so they, they all obviously had some hopes for it, but <laughs> it was a verse play. <laughs> on the, I think it's on the, not the Prometheus legend, but it was, it was a sort of Greek legend mixed up with a female Hamlet because I was, I was the girl who comes back and finds that her mother's husband or, or she comes back she'd been away and she comes back and finds that her stepfather has replaced her father and she finds out during the course of the play that he killed her father so in a, in that sense it's a sort of hamlet claudius and gertrude and hamlet and if my notes are correct <laughs> you had another very interesting leading man in oh that yes, show. yes, yes, of course. What was working with Charlton Heston oh, it like? Post Moses, we should say. Oh <laughs> uh, yes, yes. No, it was it was wonderful. Um, I think I, you know, Chuck is no longer with us now, and I don't think you mind my saying. But originally, it was supposed to be, um, oh dear, my main name is now um, Trevor Howard. Hmm. Was supposed to be. It was mainly a three three character play in verse. I mean, it's not really the sort of thing that you expect would go on Broadway. Um, it was supposed to be Trevor Howard and Brenda DeBanzi, which would have been quite a different sort of setup. But um, Trevor Howard apparently insisted on Soul Star Billing, and Sir Lawrence objected to that. He said the three parts are equal and it would unbalance the play. So Mr. Howard withdrew, hmm. and so did Brenda DeBanzi. So then. Um, I think then it was offered to Chuck, and of course Chuck jumped at it because his dream was to work with Sir Lawrence. Hmm. And um, so that's how that happened. As we're talking through all of your extraordinary leading men, I realized that I neglected to ask you about working with Sir John Gielgud. I just couldn't believe that I was on the stage with Sir John because he'd, he'd given me my prize. He was he had given me, he'd been one of the judges when I won my gold medal, but he also fired me. Yep, he cast me after that. He obviously, you know, thought that I was okay, and I got my first radio play with him, which was um, Ivanov. He was doing Ivanov with Irene Worth, and I, he cast me as Sasha, the young girl, and I was late for my first rehearsal. Can you imagine being late like that? Because mm. I lost my way and I didn't know where the studio was. So, but then he made up to, I mean, he, he, he forgave me. He then cast me as Anya in the Cherry Orchard, mm. which was to be done at the Haymarket with Trevor Howard. But um, I was cast. I didn't have to audition. I turned up for my first reading of the play. We all sat round in a circle round the stage. And I had just come up on an overnight train from Cornwall, from with my little dog and in the sleeper and we hadn't slept a wink and my voice was down in my boots like this and I wasn't paying much attention and I brought my suitcase to the stage door of the Haymarket and left my little dog there, read the play and um, everybody went away for lunch and I was just gathering my stuff together and Sir John came over to me and he said, I'm terribly sorry but I think I've made a big mistake. He said, I think you're much too mature for the part. 
And I said, really? <laughs> My voice was way down here. Mm. And I, I just didn't try and explain. And, and I remember going to pick up my dog and my suitcase and walking out of the stage door, blinded with tears, thinking, where do I go now? What do I do? And whenever I go in at the stage door of the Haymarket, which I do from time to time, it all comes back to me. So he fired me. But he sent me a wonderful letter, which I've still got, in that tiny little writing. You know, he's got, like, little hand-scratching and um, saying I, that it wasn't my fault, that, that, you know, he was the one that made the mistake and that he hadn't lost his belief in me. And it was, it was the sweetest letter. But then, you know, all these years went by, and then the next thing I knew I was playing opposite him. In his, in his swan song, it was the last play he ever did. Let's shift now to this period in the 60s where you worked with these extraordinary companies that the beginnings of the APA were in the early 60s, the Chichester Festival, and then the National Theater. Tell me about each of those companies and how you managed to, to be part of, of each of them in, in what seems to have been a fairly narrow period of time. Yes, well, I, was, I always felt and have felt and still feel that I am a company animal. I'd much rather act in a company than, than um, go out for myself. And I think Jennifer feels the same way because I know when she had that experience of doing The Coast of Utopia and doing three plays with the same cast, uh, all of that cast got this hunger and yearning and longing to say, oh, I wish we could just stay the way we are and become a company. I think it's sort of deep down in all actors, you know, because strolling players always stayed together. They were a group. I don't think we were really meant as actors to all split up and do our own thing. Hmm. It's such a shame. I just wish there was a national theatre here and... But it's a different climate now, and there's television and movies and things that all get in the way. But I am a company animal. I'd rather be in a company than, than, than in anything. Hmm. And I wouldn't care, you know, really. And the, the fun is that, you know, you play a small part and a large part and a funny part and a serious part. It's, it's, it's just the best way possible. And I'm so sorry that young actors don't get that chance. Well, let's take APA for a moment because that was something that you were very involved in in <laughs> starting with your then husband Ellis Rabb. Well, I don't think I started it. I tell two stories about that. Um, uh, one was Ellis and I got married in December and I my play, I was just doing the tumbler and let it, it folded. It only ran four nights and that was that. But I had worked with Sir Lawrence um, thereby hangs a tale because that's where we first got to know each other. Um, but um, a few weeks after that, we were summoned uh, by Miss Catherine Hepburn to her house on 49th Street. And um, we duly arrived. It was a winter's cold winter's day, and we went upstairs. And Phyllis, the lovely lady who used to live with Miss Hepburn and, and t- take care of her and everything, uh, ushered us into the sitting room and there was Miss Hepburn and then she explained why she'd asked us to come because we were rather curious and she explained that she was going to be playing Viola she was going to be doing Twelfth Night at the Connecticut Shakespeare Festival and that she would like Ellis to play Malvolio and she would like to, me to play Olivia 
And I just thought, oh, this is the most wonderful thing. And then to my horror, <laughs> I heard Alice saying, thank you so much, Miss Hepburn, but we're not available because uh, we're starting our own company. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at Alice and I, my jaw dropped and sort of, I mean, I knew a little hint about it, but not very much. And the next minute, Miss Hepburn said, Phyllis, they're coats. <laughs> and we were ushered out of the room, down the stairs, out into the street. And there we were standing sort of shivering on the pavement. And I said to Alice, well, that was fun while it lasted. But what had happened, and I always said Alice held out on me because he was eight months pregnant when we got married because he gave birth to this company a month after. Hmm. We'd only been married four weeks, and, and that's when the company was born. And it's fascinating because whenever I think of a company, I think of a company being in one place, and the APA oh, was we, all over the place. We, Bermuda, Princeton, you toured in the summer, Milwaukee, University of Michigan, and then began doing show, in, or in the midst of this, periodically coming to New York and doing shows. Yes, in well, we were what the Ford Ford uh, Ford um, people said. Well, we were peripatetic, so we, they never would give us a grant because there'd always used to be a matching grant from a city or an organization or something. But they they ne- they denied us any cash at all because they we were peripatetic. How that all came about was that Ellis had had Ellis had gone to drama school with Bill Ball, who started ACT. San Francisco. And they, as students, had both of them had this dream that they would one day have their companies. And I think Ellis was the first one to achieve that. And I think in the very early days, he made this list of actors and directors and choreographers and musicians and designers. And he said, these are the, going to be the nucleus of this company. And he wrote a letter... Um, which I saw the other day because Ellis left me all his papers. And he wrote this round-robin letter inviting all these people to come to this meeting. And he said, I want to know if you're interested, but I'm going to start. Um, It's not a company. He said, I'm going to rent a studio space with very little money. We don't have any money, but we've got lots of time. And he said, I'm going to choose three plays and we're going to rehearse them. I'll cast them and rehearse them, and then the designer can design them on paper and the musician can compose the music, and we'll have it all, and then we will invite people to come, as it were, to a a final undress rehearsal, uh, like an angel, and we'll say, this is the product, and if you buy it, it's going to cost this much money to cast it, to costume it and, you know, give it all the background to it. Well, it never actually got to that. That was his idea, And he got a lot of people who jumped on board. But again, I'd forgotten this, but reading through the archives, apparently the Bermuda Theatre Guild um, offered me a season or to come to Bermuda to do a play of my choice. And um, I said, I'm so sorry, I've just got married, I'm not available, and my husband has just started a company you know, which I'm, I'm attached to, and they immediately said, oh, tell us about the company. <laughs> so we did, and they were the first people who, who were our angels, and they gave us $50,000 and said, bring the three productions to Bermuda and um, we'll, we'll produce you. Hmm. So by the time we got finished Bermuda, we had these three productions uh, all mounted. Which were? Um, the Seagull. 
um, Man and Superman with the hell scene, which is not often done, the Shaw play. Mm -hmm. And then Tom Jones and Harvey Schmidt had written a wonderful music called Anatole, which was the loves of Anatole by by Schnitzler. Schnitzer. Schnitzler. Schnitzler. Schnitzler, yeah. So we had these three productions, and, and then it was just a question of finding a birth for them when we came back to America, and we got, we got you know, offers to come just week by week. We lived just literally hand, hmm. to, hand to mouth. Um, and that's how, it all, that's how it all began. Well, you said there's a tale in Laurence Olivier because with Olivier you ended up working at Chichester and at the start of that festival and then shortly thereafter the founding of the actual National Theatre yeah. in London at the Old Vic, um, a production which seems to have been quite extraordinary in in this was an Uncle Vanya mm-hmm. with you, with Sir Lawrence directing and Michael Redgrave as well. Mm-hmm. That just oh, sounds that, like an well, amazing... Well, that was like dreaming you're playing tennis on... Center court at Wimbledon. I used to stand on that stage sometimes and rub my eyes and think, I can't really believe this is happening. But that again was all chance. Um, I shouldn't really have been in it at all, um, not that particular production. But because the first season, Sir Lawrence did Uncle Vanya, which I wasn't connected with at all, and I was in the other two plays, The Chances and The Broken Heart, which were two very unfamiliar plays to the general public. Um, and I'd never read Uncle Vanya even, or let alone seen it. And I remember going to a dress rehearsal and being uh, going to my dressing room at the end of it and just sobbing my heart out. I was just so moved. I was just torn apart by the production. And mm-hmm. that was Joan, Joan Greenwood was playing uh, Ileana. Um, otherwise, the cast was the same. And I just, I just, I'd never seen anything that moved me more. And towards the end of the season, um, Joan Greenwood became pregnant. Hmm. And she was, she and her husband had been married for quite a time, and they were not young. And she was, oh, wait a minute. No, 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 no. She played, oh, no, that's what happened. She played the whole season. That's right. She wasn't pregnant then. But her understudy became pregnant and was warned by her doctor that she would lose the baby unless she sort of stopped immediately, which was two weeks before the end of the season, which meant that there was a two-week gap with no understudy. And I hot-footed it to Sir Lawrence's (laughs) dressing room and knocked on his door and I said, is there any chance could I possibly understudy for the next two weeks and he said oh you don't want to do that and I said oh, I'd, I'd die to do that and he said well you'll have to know the part in about two days I said that I'll do it I, I practically know it now so I did get to be the understudy didn't get on of course and I thought well that was it but at least I was able to sit backstage and listen to the play every night hmm. and it was like a dream come true I never dreamt that a year later that Sir Lawrence had decided that because the play had been such a success to retain it in the rep for the next Chichester season and this is where the luck came in because in the meantime Joan Greenwood got pregnant <laughs> and wasn't able to join the company so Sir Lawrence said well now, baby, 
It's all yours. I wonder if you were playing matchmaker backstage. <laughs> this, this was your all about well, Eve moment very in the kindest, gentlest way we possible. Des- we decided that the water in Chichester was very, very, very good for fertility. <laughs> but that's when Sir Lawrence said, it, 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 it's the part, it's all yours. Hmm. So that's how things happen. But it's all chance, isn't it? Hmm. Then... The National Theater. Mm-hmm. You were part of a guest artist. It was described in that in that first season. But yes. you got to play Ophelia opposite Peter O'Toole as Hamlet. Yes. What can you tell me about that experience? Well, again, I, I don't think I was really supposed to because they wanted, um, you know, they'd cast a lot of people, and the, we were coming to the end of Chichester season, and and it had, you know, obviously, I never thought that I'd be playing Ophelia. Because I was much older than than you know normally Ophelia is cast, and apparently they had auditioned a lot of young actresses and hadn't found anybody that they felt was right. And I remember sitting in the cafeteria or something at Chichester, and Peter and Sir Lawrence coming up to me and saying, um, "We thought about it, and and we've decided that we'd like Ophelia to be a lady in waiting in the court." And would you like to... We've decided that we'd like to offer you the part of Ophelia. And so I was older, you see. Ophelia's usually played as a very young, innocent young thing and the younger sister of Laertes, but in our case, Derek Jacobi was Laertes and I was his older sister. Hmm. And I was in the first court scene, um, although I had no, 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 no script, but I was... Gertrude's lady in waiting hmm. and so I guess I don't suppose the audience even noticed I was there but but I was in the court and that's how I got to be with Hamlet so it was a different sort of relationship but you know <laughs> a funny little story about that because obviously we were older and um, I was older you know than most Ophelia's and uh, so I obviously wasn't an, a, a little virginal ninny which is usually played as or certainly very very innocent and so it put a different spin on on our relationship and um it um there's there's the old joke about um the the young actor in the west end and he's about to appear in in hamlet he's going to open that night and he's sitting looking at his beer in the pub and there's this old actor laddie sitting beside him and he said you look very preoccupied my boy and he said yes I am I'm I'm opening in Hamlet tonight and I've got it all worked out I've done all my research and I know exactly how I'm going to play every moment but there's just one thing that I cannot make up my mind about and he said oh well maybe I can help you what is it and he said well I just cannot decide does Hamlet sleep with Ophelia and the old actor looks into his beer and he says, well, I don't know what she does in the West End, but she always does on tour. <laughs> <laughs> so I only bring that up because obviously ours was not an innocent relationship, which, of course, normally it, it, it kind of is. But, you know, to take it further, because I would like to have played it that way and it was in the back of my mind, but you see... I think Shakespeare had it in mind, and they actually did it that way at the Globe, um, Shakespeare's Globe in in San Diego. Ophelia is pregnant, hmm. and she had a she had a little bump. I don't think the audience particularly noticed it, 
But the mad scene, if you study those lines, she is not with... I mean, it's very possible she's with child. Hmm. And, and where... It, it sort of all came I, I, maybe this is all too much of a preamble but there is a, a, a film called The Prince of Jutland um, which was made by that wonderful director who, who made Babette's Feast he's mm. a Swedish director and uh, he actually wanted Jennifer to be in it in his film but I got to see the film and in the story of The Prince of Jutland Ophelia is very distinctly pregnant, and Claudius murders her. He, he pushes her off a cliff because she is carrying the future king of Denmark. Hmm. And uh, he, he kills her, and therefore uh, Gertrude's There is a Willow Grows a Slanted Brook is a spin. She's just making it all up because it really didn't happen that way. She, huh. he was act, she was actually murdered by Claudius. <laughs> mm. All these things sort of, you know, open up the whole thing. But if you examine the, the Ophelia's songs when she says, inner maiden, outer maiden, never a maiden more, and, you know, it, 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 I, I think there would be a very brave Hamlet to let his Ophelia come on great with child. Hmm. Because Gertrude's first line when she sees Ophelia is, how now, Ophelia? Hmm. My God, what's happened? And uh, so... And a little interesting thing about um, the my mad scene that I did with Peter, um, I told somebody this the other day, and they, they found it very interesting, and I'd forgotten about it, but Sir Lawrence dismissed all the rest of the cast... He said, I'll, I'll put Rosie through the mad scene. It's just, we don't really need anybody else. She and I will just do it together. And uh, everybody went away, and Sir Lawrence gave me all the moves, all the interpretations of the lines. I had one of those little red tem temple Shakespeare's, and I just followed him. He, he played the mad scene for me. He, he climbed up, because you know, it was an amazing set with a great big cliff up there and what he'd done he'd really turned the scene inside out all the sweet little lines he'd made incredibly vicious and all the vicious all the slightly unpleasant lines he'd made very sweet and like he had me when Ophelia says to Gertrude you must wear your rue with a difference she, he had me slap Gertrude on the face Hmm. viciously and I played the whole thing in a kind of manic vicious way one minute laughing and the next minute crying and sobbing and it was a very I mean it must have been extraordinary to watch and I was uh, breathless by the time he'd finished and I said I just I'm blown away I just it, 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 he said well he said I've lived through this and I said, what do you mean? He said, Vivian used to be like this. She would have these manic moments where she would be ruthless and vicious and do vicious physical things, and then the next minute she would break down and burst into tears and sobbing, and you just want to take her in your arms and, 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 and hug her. And... and I've, I said, oh, oh, I see. So that's how I, that's how I played the mad scene. Hmm. 
I don't, I don't think anybody's going to mind my telling that story because Sir Lawrence is not here and Miss Lee is not here, but um, it, was, it was an interesting way to play the part. Extraordinary. Let's jump ahead um, a couple of years to your Tony-winning success in The Lion in Winter. which some people think of as a classical play because, of course, the period and the setting and the costumes, but it was a new comedy on Broadway. Wonderful play. Can you talk a little bit about creating the character of Eleanor? How much was that set by James Goldman? Did you have some input? Oh, he didn't change a word, and the play was perfect. I read it with Alice on a plane. And I just kept turning the pages and thinking, this is incredible, this is wonderful, I can't believe my luck that this has fallen into my lap. And how it came about was because, obviously, Miss Hepburn was supposed to play the part. She was, I'm sure, their first choice. And um, it was offered to her. And uh, this is uh, as I understood it. And because Spencer Tracy was so ill... She declined. She said there was no way that she could leave Hollywood and come to New York. Hmm. So it left the part up for grabs. And I'm not, I don't quite know how, how I ended up with it. I don't know who else was offered it um, after her, um, but I wasn't going to question it. <laughs> hmm. uh, and as far as I remember, um, they said to me, um, if you think, because Eleanor is past childbearing. I mean, that's a very important plot point. And they said, if you think that you can play somebody who is past childbearing, the part's yours. Hmm. So I wasn't about to say, no, I don't think I can. And, of course, I hadn't even dreamed that I would even ever have Jennifer, so it was certainly, you know, I was in a different time zone. But... um, I, I adored doing that. It was wonderful. Mm-hmm. But it, it's interesting because for a, a show that is probably best remembered now because, because of the of film, the yeah. it had a short run. It only ran about ten weeks. Yes, because, oh, again, you see the bad luck. Um, Stanley Kaufman was the critic of the Times at that time although he was mainly a a film critic, wasn't he? And Walter Kerr was the critic for the Herald Tribune. And if they had been the other way round, the play would have run two years or a year because Walter Kerr's review said, uh, put on... uh, People usually say you can't remember your good reviews, but this one I do remember because he said, put on your wind cheaters. There's a great gale blowing down at the ambassadors. And he said, this is one of the best plays of the decade and some of the best performances I've seen in a decade. And Mm -hmm. that was for Robert Preston. And that review would have kept us running and running and running. But Tanley Kaufman bad cess to him, uh, objected to the um, colloquialism. He, he didn't like the modern language. Um, I don't really remember what he said, but he put a thumb hmm. down on it, and um, that, that killed us. But if we'd had Walter Kerr's review, I think the play would have certainly run a year. Hmm. As our time grows short, we're still in the 60s, which is extraordinary. So let well, me I've ask, had a long life, you let know. Let me ask a broad question, which is I, I read a comment 
Um, someone characterized your career as being quite extraordinary because you specialized in doing American plays in London <laughs> and British plays in America. Do you think that's that's a fair assessment of, mm. of, of the later years, I certainly? I don't know. Uh, it just seemed to happen that way. It wasn't planned. Um, I can't quite remember what they were. Hmm. Um, well, certainly in terms of doing things, you know, you, you were... Plaza Suite. You, you did, did All My then. Sons in London. Yeah. You did, uh, you know, you did Plaza Suite in London. You know, on Broadway you were doing things like Pack of Lies and Hay Fever and Steel That's Magnolias right. in yeah. London. Yeah. So it really is mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. Do you think... Was, was some of that because, of course, you had really chosen to base yourself here at the point at which you married... Your husband John, you became based in North Carolina, where mm-hmm. you where you still are based. And so, do the Americans see you as English, and do the English see mm-hmm. you as American now? I suppose so. I suppose that's the way it is now. I don't know. Hmm. <laughs> Strange to think of. Um, I want to ask you about your experiences in the plays of Edward Albee. There are there are. Actors who are thought of as all be actors, and some of them spend decades as all be actors. In in the material I found, you came to Mr. Albee relatively late with Delicate Balance, mm-hmm. and following that a few years later with All Over. Mm-hmm. Was was that in terms of a, a particular playwright's voice something to to mm. learn to understand? No, I was just thrilled. Um, because, of course, I'd seen the original production with Jessica Tandy and Hume Cronin and loved it. Um, but then I don't remember exactly what year it was, but occasionally I would meet Edward um, either at a Kennedy Center honors function or something, and he would look at me and he'd say, Agnes, <laughs> Agnes. <laughs> and he, of course... He would say, uh, what I find most astonishing, aside from that belief of mine, which never ceases to surprise me by the very fact of his surprising lack of unpleasantness, he would immediately go into Agnes's speech at <sighs> me, you know, and I would sort of get a thrill. So I didn't, you know, didn't know when it might happen, but I had a feeling that when it did happen that he would ask me to be Agnes. Huh. And I still do that. I can still do that speech like I'm sure he can too. Because Edward taught it to you. <laughs> well, I had, to, I had to learn it to do the play. But it's a wonderful speech and it's a wonderful play and I was thrilled. Hmm. And then I loved All Over. I think that's an incredibly incredible play too. So... And Edward's Edward's text is 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 something just lovely to get your teeth into and use, and every syllable counts, and that's again like a piece of music. Mm-hmm. Well, as I said, I feel like we've we've skimmed so much of your extraordinary career, but we we do have to close. I think the one thing I can say for anyone listening is that nursing's loss is the theater's gain (laughs) and rosemary harris thank you so much for being with us on downstage center thank you thank you for being such a wonderful listener
Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from AmericanTheaterWing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit our website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center and the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.